You were meant to. <laughs> what a guy. Welcome to Binley Manor. Uh, it's nice, isn't it? Um, this is a, a place that four families in my church at Howsham Christian Fellowship felt led of God to begin to purchase, at least to obtain, for the kingdom of God. And it's ours, really, so that we might develop it as a, a place for conferences, for um, using that to reach the world, uh, as well as the church. It's a tremendous place, and uh, we're really only at the beginning of it. In fact, the last conference we did, the first half of this thing, uh, was the first conference of a kind that I believe God wants us to do again and again. And so it was rather a prophetic thing. And this time, you're, you're the second uh, lot that have come here to, to this kind of conference where we're seeking to uh, explain what this world is about and what God's answers are to it. So it's tremendous. Let me just say that uh, all the grounds uh, are available. Uh, it's not raining today yet. And uh, all the grounds are available in the breaks to wander around and enjoy <coughs> the countryside. Uh, if you don't want to go swimming, we do understand. <laughs> um, can I say, too, that um, the way we're purchasing this is, uh, is something like half a million pounds to buy, and we have to raise that money by gifts or by investments from Christians. And so if you feel God stirs you in any way to think, yeah, well, I wouldn't mind some putting some money into a thing like this for the kingdom of God's sake, then... Um, Ask Paul, who's the manager, who will be buzzing around throughout the day, about details of that. You may feel you want to just give, or um, wouldn't mind putting money in that gets a better rate of return than a building society. Then um, it's possible to do that here and also promote the kingdom of God. Now, uh, Alan gave me the subject, understanding the sexual revolution, so we better try and do that, I guess. Uh, so that is the title. Um, I want to take you back to the 1960s. How many were alive in 1960? Anyone? Oh, oh, yeah. Live, I was old in 1960. I was nearly drawing my pension in 1960. <laughs> OK. Uh, let's find a switch on this thing. There we go. The 1960s, we've achieved it. Now... I'm sure you're as aware as I am that something is happening in our society. In, yeah, do move if you're not comfortable. Something's happening in our society which is pretty disastrous as far as sexual ethics is concerned. And uh, are you sitting comfortably? It's okay. Better? For my last point, <laughs> something's happening in our society that's pretty grim as far as sex is concerned. We're seeing almost wholesale disaster in that field. We've got to understand, as Christians, why it's happening. A, a lot of the problems that we have of reaching the world are, are problems that come about because we, we try to answer questions that the world isn't asking, and we do so in the wrong place anyway. Uh, it was C.T. Studd who, I think, said, I would like to set up a rescue shop within a yard of hell. 
What we have tended to do is to open a motorway cafe with the menu written entirely in French for those that feel like stopping. And the motorway is a good, clear, open road at the present time, and nobody's particularly hungry, just occasionally somebody does get hungry, and so they stop off at our restaurant and they go inside and they, they read the menu and find, oh, I don't understand French very well but I'll struggle with it and maybe I will get something out of this restaurant before I go back onto my motorway. You see, most people are not the least bit interested in being saved, in being regenerated, in having their sins washed away through the blood that maketh atonement. Most people are not really interested in the restoration of the church and in eldership and tithing and the significance of house groups and relationships and things of that kind church growth leads, leaves them cold but they're not the questions they're asking when you get within a yard of hell you find people are asking some questions they want to know what's happening because you see the motorway does run out it comes to a, 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 an ever-darkening end and the road gets very bumpy and rocky and before you know it, you can hear the screams of people going over the precipice. Now, if you open a shop there, you will get some customers. And what I'm saying is that we, in our evangelism, have got to answer the questions that people are asking. We've got to be where the people are at. And, and my conviction is that we have largely failed as a church to understand those things. So, what I'm doing today is not merely an academic exercise for us. It, it is concerned about how we reach this generation for Jesus Christ. Back in the 1960s, I had four new ideas, which were not really very new, but uh, they appeared new because they became popular at the time. And the first of the new ideas is a, a catchphrase. I've got to keep things hidden a bit. This has to be a strip tea show also, you see. Uh, but let's hide some bits, otherwise you'll see it all. The first new idea was a catchphrase in the 1960s let it all hang out. I wonder how many remember that catchphrase. Anyone old enough? Yeah. yeah all the geriatrics. Uh, I thought this was uh, a young group today. <laughs> right, now listen. In the 1960s everyone was saying, let it all hang out man. Now what does that mean? Well I'll tell you. The psychologist um, Sigmund Freud or psychoanalyst as he was had come up with an idea about mankind that was very different from the one everybody had always known before that. And his ideas became very popular in the 60s. They went something like this. That inside all of us, as we're very well aware, we have sexual desires. Now, Freud saw that as some dark pond that was frothing away with all sorts of nasty monsters wanting to get out, you know? Um, all these passionate sexual desires... He saw also that most people were, were, were repressed in the expression of those unordered instincts. And he believed that the repression was brought about not by God, because he didn't believe that God really existed, but was brought about by the church and by our parents and by the establishment in general saying that these things are bad for you. Sex is something nasty. Sex is something to be kept under wraps, under control. Don't allow your feelings to have any expression. If you do, 
then obviously you'll be in trouble. It'll be a bad thing. It'll be a very naughty thing. And the argument would go something like this, that, of course, the church has a vested interest in keeping sexual desires under control. Because if the church keeps sexual desires under control, then people will have to get married to express them. And if people have to get married to express them, then they'll have to go to church to do that. And uh, the church will charge them money, and the vicars will get paid. And so the whole biz will keep going. And of course, when you get married, you have children. They have to come to church to be turned into little Christians, and the vicar gets paid. And so the whole process goes on. So it is very convenient for the church to believe that sex is a bad thing and ought to be kept under very tight control. The trouble is, said Freud, that if you repress all these basic desires, which he called the libido, if you repress that with uh, the conscience thing, which he called superego, you create an internal conflict. And once you've got this conflict, you become neurotic. And you start twitching, you see. And what Freud saw was a society that was sexually repressed and therefore was twitching in all sorts of ways. And the biggest single twitch that he saw was religion. And believed that religion was uh, a way of coping with this repression uh, that, that was taking place within us. And it was obviously a very bad thing, because who wants to be twitching? Hands up all those who want to twitch, no? No. So... What's the answer to this? The answer is very simple. You must stop believing in this false idea of God. You must stop believing that sex is bad and to be kept under control. You must stop repressing these ideas. You must let them out. And so the catchphrase in the 60s was, let it all hang out. And you'll be much healthier for the exercise. And so the encouragement was... um, Instead of uh, waiting until marriage, if you fancy it, do it. And if you don't, you'll become unhealthy. Now, that teaching has crept into our schools and everywhere. For example, uh, standard teaching in our schools today about masturbation is that it's obviously a good thing to do. In fact, if you don't, you will probably become unhealthy. You will be repressing something that you should be expressing, and you'll become an unhealthy person. Now, we are all agreed that masturbation doesn't make you blind, senile, or spotty, but the argument today is that far from this being, perhaps sexual desires being something that ought to be controlled, channeled in positive directions, or anything like that, today, no, you must positively encourage children to masturbate for their health and their well-being. Now, along with that comes a whole lot of lust and everything else, but that doesn't matter after all, because uh, there's no God to answer to. And so why should we have these false taboos about the thing? Let it all hang out. And if you want to sleep around, well, why not? You certainly ought not to restrain your sexual desires. What's the use of a boy and girl walking down the road, and we all know what he's thinking, and she's probably thinking the same. Why should they wait until marriage? Why shouldn't they do what they both want to do, because uh, these desires are there and it's only the church and parents and, all the, and the establishment that put the repression on in the first place. That was the first brilliant new idea in the 1960s. It was another one. It's The Naked Ape. Now that's the title of a book by Desmond Morris. And that's still a best-selling book. Desmond Morris represents uh, a school of thought called the behaviourists. Now, 
that is not to do with good manners. The, uh, the behaviourists uh, basically teach this, that we have all evolved from some primeval sludge. You all know the theory of evolution, don't you? Um, survival of the fittest, getting better and better all the time. We have evolved. Therefore, we are only animals. If you look at us, we're obviously a sophisticated animal. We clearly have some connections with chimpanzees, some more than others, but uh, uh, there are connections. So we have evolved somewhere and somehow over a long period of time from the animal kingdom. We are still basically animal people. And the naked ape argues that the way we are sexually is essentially the same as the way animals are, except that we've made it more sophisticated. You see, why do animals have sex? Well, they do so because of a reproductive instinct to keep the, the herd going. Why do human beings have sex? Well, for the same reason, only we sophisticate it more, we say to preserve the genetic code so that the power of evolution can continue from generation to generation. And lo and behold, today, brothers and sisters, we have reached the time where we can now control our own evolution. Through genetic engineering and gene manipulation, we could actually dictate where the human race goes next. Wonderful. What a pinnacle of evolution. We've become like God. Now, if it's true that sex only exists to keep the human race going, then say the behaviourists, the way we respond is in a very simple animal-like way. We respond by stimulus and response. So, for example, I go, boo! And he gives a little smile. <laughs> Why? <coughs> well, because I woke him up. <laughs> you see, and why did you laugh then? Oh, because I stimulated you and you responded. Now we can explain, say the behaviourists, all our human experience in precisely those terms. Stimulus, response. So there is no such thing as love Love is only a complicated stimulus-response mechanism to keep the human race going. Now, what that means in practice, of course, is that if you're going to preserve the human race, it's, it's important that little babies, whom we know to be vulnerable, are looked after. So you need a structure in which to look after these little babies. And so there comes up this idea of marriage. But marriage only exists as a way of keeping the human race going. Of course, if we find that by means of uh, culture dishes we can do the reproductive process in a laboratory, then we don't need marriage. If we find that in our society we have so structured it that lesbians and homosexuals could look after children perfectly well, then we don't need marriage between the sexes as we've understood it. We can redesign the whole thing. In fact, in the end we can choose to control birth just as we want. Meanwhile, we have these animal desires and uh, people like Desmond Morris explain all the way the pupils dilate and everything else to show sexual attraction. And we can say, OK, her pupils have dilated. 
she must love me she must want me jolly good because I fancy her and uh, we can carry on and do whatever we like you see there can be no morals no absolute morals on this basis we're just animals we can all be excused there is no such thing as responsibility because if they're if we're only you can't hold two alley cats responsible for their actions really can you so why should you hold human beings responsible for their actions? Because everyone's happy with this, and it's been thoroughly taught in our society now for 25 years. Everyone's happy with this until somebody decides to rape some girl down an alley. And he's saying, oh, it was just stimulus response. I saw her, I fancied her, so we did it. Why not on that argument? Because I don't find that the local Tom Cat is having, answering great moral questions when it leap, leaps upon the thing that, that's next door. It just, just happens because animals do it. And this is the dilemma that our society is in. We say on the one hand, and we absolutely believe in modern society, that we are just evolved animals, and therefore there's no moral responsibility, until somebody gets hurt. And then we get all moral about it and we have problems. But that's part of the dilemma of our society. Here's the third bright new idea of the 1960s. It was Lady Chatterley's lover. Now, D.H. Lawrence was a, 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 a guy who, who followed what is known as a romanticist school of thought. Now, it's nothing to do with Barbara Cartland and her idea of romance. The romanticists um, were a group of people that sought to explore the realms of sex and violence, especially. What they really sought to do was to see, to rebel against the status quo and to see how far you could go in finding new ways, interesting ways of exploring life, particularly in the realm of sex. Now, what D.H. Lawrence does in that book, uh, which incidentally got the blessing of the bishops when it was banned and came to court and, and then was published. Uh, the the bishops blessed it for this reason. Twits that they were, uh, they read it and said, Ah, this is art. And of course, as we'd come to believe by now that if it was art, you couldn't touch it because art equals God, uh, then it must be all right. But failed completely to understand the message of that book. Now, the message was this. Lawrence portrayed a marriage... A marriage of, a, of a, a woman to a man, but he was very careful to show that the marriage was sexually dead. It was a dull, miserable, legalistic, correct, Victorian, dutiful system. On the other hand, he portrays the relationship that this woman entered into with the gamekeeper as being a warm, moist, earthy and sensual experience. And a, a, a very wonderful, fulfilling relationship of necessity outside marriage. And so what you had with that book, which again it was published in this country in the 1960s, and from that time on changed all the literature in all our popular bookshops. What you have in that book is uh, a message. And the message is this, if you want passion you will have to find it outside of marriage. You will have to find it in an adventure, in a rebellion against the status quo. And that message has come through in most literature since then. 
It is the message that also dominates all our pop media. Virtually all rock music carries the same romanticist message that if you want passion, it will be found in rebellion. And therefore, if you turn to God, if you turn to the status quo, if you turn to established ways of doing things, then automatically it lacks passion. And who wants that? You can't find love in marriage. You're going to have to find real love in an adventure outside. That was the message of the book. And it's a very popular idea. It still dominates uh, much of our thinking today. One of the problems is that it has made many people imagine that, that you might as well give up on marriage. It's made them look at marriages from the outside and think they must be automatically dead, dull and boring. Which is far from true, but nonetheless people believe it. Here's the fourth idea. And that's uh, in the song that the Beatles sent all around the world, All You Need Is Love. Now... Some theologians around about that time in the early 60s were having some problems. This was their problem. We believe that legalism is wrong, they said. Who wants to keep laws? Thou shalt not commit adultery is obviously a very rigid law. Well, nobody wants to live by rigid laws, do they? On the other hand, we don't really believe that we're animals. We don't want to go, as theologians, we have some idea of a concept called God, and we believe that makes us noble, so we don't want to go down the road that leads to an animal existence. How are we going to live then? How are we going to conduct ourselves sexually? And they came up with this wonderful idea. It's called situation ethics. And what it means is this, that you cannot know anything as right or wrong, absolutely, but when you meet a situation then you can make a decision and find out what to do. So let's create a dilemma. You come out of your house and there's been a car crash. And you're the only person around. You live in the middle of nowhere. A hundred yards apart are two bodies. Both are alive. Both are spurting blood. Which way are you going to turn, left or right? You can only save one life. Which one are you going to do? The situation ethicist says you can't answer that until you get there. You will have to be in that situation and then make a decision based on something or other as to what's best to do. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm inclined to agree with that. I think I'd be in that situation and say, God, which way do I go? Please guide me. The situation ethicist doesn't say it quite like that. He uses a different argument. He says, you have got to judge on the basis of love. That's the one thing you can trust. Is it loving? Now, given these two people 50 yards apart, you've got to make a decision. Which is the loving decision to make? Well, you will have to look at one person and think, ah, a woman, probably a mother... Mm, you look the other way. An old man. Well, probably it would be more loving to go to the woman who's probably got children. So I'll go that way and let the old man die. You see? I'm trying to assess it on love. This is fine until you carry over into the realm of sexual ethics. 
The only test is love. Now, here's boy and girl going out together. Should they have sex before marriage? Well, would it be loving? You can't say it's wrong any longer. And you don't want them just to follow their animal instincts, so would it be loving? Well, perhaps it would. Do you love each other? Well, yeah. Think so? Yeah. Do you fancy each other? Well, I fancy her. Yeah. She might fancy me. Yeah, I reckon she would. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's love then, isn't it? And therefore, it's right. Simple. Except that the idea of love in the Bible is not would we enjoy it. The idea of love in the Bible is one of sacrifice. It's laying down your life for somebody. And in the popularising of this idea, what people began to believe was that if you think you would enjoy it, then that equals love. Would it be nice? Well, therefore it's loving. Now that has led in our society to many people equating sex and love. And many girls particularly get hurt by this because they believe that to find love they must have sex. Because it becomes one and the same thing. You see, sex is enjoyable, therefore sex is loving, therefore sex is love. And of course many girls are terribly disappointed because it doesn't work that way and yet still they go on. And I sometimes ask myself, why is it that so many girls are promiscuous? Why do they go from one person to another? It is so blatantly obvious to me that they are the ones that get hurt more than the fellas. Why do they persist? Well, because they're looking for love through sex. And not finding it, because you don't find love through sex. But the popularising of this teaching, all you need is love, has made many people unconsciously think that way. And so we have this problem on our hands. Four bright new ideas that today still dominate our secular society and have infiltrated the church to a considerable degree. Those were four glamorous ideas. That led us in the 1970s to the realm of sexual freedom. So we really enjoyed ourselves. We could do anything we want. And what has happened, I'll just put this in the form of a graph, what has happened is that our sexual freedom has led to an increase in a certain number of things. It has led, for example, to an increase in the number of abortions. Now, prior to the 1960s, abortion was rare. Termination of pregnancy was done in emergencies to save the life of uh, a mother. Um, that was about all. On occasions it was done in rare cases of, of rape. Um, averaged about five a year. This past year we have, in this country, aborted 172,000 babies. Two and a half million babies have died since 1967 when David Steele introduced the Abortion Act. <coughs> That's a lot of babies. Our freedom said we must not be hindered in our pursuit of these ideas. We must express our desires. We have the same rights as animals. We want passion. 
we want to find love and babies get in the way well we made the pill available to everybody but babies still get bought, conceived so we must abort these babies and that is the reason the vast majority of babies that are aborted each year are not deformed nor are they the result of rape nor is the mother's life in danger but they are aborted on the grounds that there's some risk to the mother's health but the trouble with that argument is that with every pregnancy there's some risk to the mother's health by definition there is a risk but then there is a risk if you walk across the road to being knocked down by a car the word risk means nothing what you have to assess is the percentage risk is this a significant risk is it so significant that a woman might die or even crack up mentally well in the vast majority of cases no not at all because the law has no assessment of that risk and the abortion act actually operates to allow us our sexual freedom and get rid of the consequences if they occur it's also led to a vast increase in pornography I mentioned that Lady Chatterley's lover has uh, changed the bookshops it has you can virtually publish any amount of pornography today and that has made the bookshops very different from what they used to be when I was a kid it has led to many Christians reading pornography and hardly knowing that that's what they're doing it has made a, a boom market in sexy magazines now we do in this nation have some restrictions but not a lot but we have some one of the results of this sexual freedom is uh, a, 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 an immediate question comes up well, I don't fancy women, but I do fancy men. Well, on these arguments, fine. If that's your thing, it's okay. And so we changed the law to make homosexuality an acceptable practice, no longer a criminal offence between consenting adults over the age of 21. But along with that change in the law came an unwritten belief that homosexuality is all right. And today it is taught very positively in many of our schools as a valid option. And so we have children who are going through a, a phase of hero worship for somebody of the same sex, which is very common when we're about 13, 14 years old. Most of us go through um, hero worship. Uh, you know, boy, boys latch on to male figures, girls often latch on to the games mistress or something like that. And they have a, a form of hero worship, which is, is part of finding your own sexual identity and growing up. The, the perversion today is that we're now taught that that means you are homosexual, or at least bisexual, and therefore you ought to explore that avenue. Now that's absolutely false. It's a misunderstanding of the growing up process. It is psychologically very bad. It's physiologically a misunderstanding. But it is all to promote these philosophies that, uh, of sexual freedom. Adultery and divorce have become commonplace. After all, if we can all do what we want, why should we remain faithful to our partner? There's no ground to do so. There's no God we can get away with it so that's which has led us to a stage of one in three marriages breaking up in this country it's also led us to a, 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 as we've found out quite recently to a very high incidence of child abuse and incest 
It's almost certainly true that more than one person in this room has been abused sexually. That is, unfortunately, the norm in our society. And some of you will know it, some of you would have got over it all right, some of you will be quite scarred up on the inside. Because it has become almost commonplace in our society. Why? Well, why should you say incest is wrong? On what grounds? If we all believe these philosophies of the 60s, then incest is acceptable. And if we're allowed to kill babies in the womb, why shouldn't we beat up kids once they're born? How can you argue that it's okay to get a professional to chop a baby to pieces and then crush the baby's head with a pair of forceps? We can do that. It happens once every three minutes. And then say that once babies are born, we shouldn't hurt them. Well, the argument doesn't follow. And so it's perfectly likely that we will beat up children. Oh yeah, abortion is not the only cause of child abuse by any means, but it's given a very, very strong openness to the abuse of people. Once you start killing some, then where should you stop in the hurting? And uh, although we are finding more people coming forward acknowledging child abuse than used to because we're giving the publicity to it nonetheless there is by every known standard a dramatic increase and you can trace that back to this period in the 60s you can do that with so many things and of course as I've already mentioned assault and rape have also increased because we have a philosophic climate that allows that now this is all very fine until it came to the 1980s and all of a sudden, we found ourselves confronted with AIDS. What had began as a glamorous experiment and a lot of new ideas, throwing off Victorian uh, morality, what led to the sinful 70s where we could break every bound has now brought us to the deadly 80s. And without anybody expecting this, really, except for some prophets, we suddenly found ourselves confronted with a disease that spoils all our fun. And AIDS is causing our society at last to rethink. AIDS is the logical result of these philosophers. But they couldn't see it. Those of us who were around in the 60s were prophesying that this would happen. We didn't know it would be called AIDS, but we knew that something like this must happen logically and because God would bring it about. Now, let me say straight away, AIDS is a judgment of God. There's no question about that. However you read your Bible, you will find that AIDS must be a judgment of God. And it's not simply a cause and effect judgment. It is that, but it's not simply that. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't even have to believe in God to believe in cause and effect. Any scientist believes in cause and effect. Um, if you go and sit in the middle of the main road then you will get knocked down by a car sooner or later. Simple cause and effect. You don't need God to believe that. From a Christian perspective, we do not have a God who started a scientific world underway and then retired for a holiday in some far-flung galaxy. 
what we have is a living God who is involved in his world and at times brings judgment upon his world and he brings those judgments out of his love he does so to stop us from destroying ourselves he does so to remind us of his ways and AIDS is God's way of saying I have warned you I have warned you I have warned you I have warned you now I'm really telling you amend your ways and if you amend your ways then the judgment will cease I will remove the curse and your society will be saved but AIDS is now at last making people rethink the trouble is they're still trapped to a large degree in their systems so how are we rethinking well we're saying we must still have our right to passion we must still have our right to to, um, if we feel like it to do it so use a condom reduce the risk but carry on working the same old worn out philosophy and that's the tragedy of our society but here is God speaking an answer in the judgment that will save our society and we say no we must carry on in our same old philosophy so all we would do is try and restrain the risk and you may have noticed with the uh, AIDS advertisements that the government mounted on the television that they were all in uh, the form of a rock video Uh, they, they all had the same sort of imagery a romantic imagery and that does not enable people to take it seriously because we don't believe the romantic videos that we see on rock programs that's part of our exploration part of our art part of our feelings but it doesn't touch the real world what the government should have done is shown us pictures of AIDS victims dying and then we might have got the message but we can't do that because if we do that that would be too real and it might actually upset these philosophies And so our government has totally failed to appreciate the judgment of God, has totally failed, really, to communicate the reality of the disease, which means that the majority of people are still taking the gamble that we can get away with it on the reduced risk basis. And some folk aren't even bothering with that. They say, I take my chance. I can look at the statistics. I can say what the percentages are, and I will get away with it. Now, it is true that in the homosexual community they have tended to more stable relationships because that's at the present a high-risk group. But we have to remember that AIDS is not the disease of homosexuals, it's the disease of the promiscuous. And heterosexuals are still largely carrying on their promiscuous lifestyle. And that is going to hit our nation for six within about two years now. Unless we heed the voice of God. So the sexual revolution came about through the popularisation of these ideas. We've now reached a very significant point in society where continuance means death. Question. What is the church doing all about this? Well, traditional morality. (coughs) Traditional morality was very square (laughs) as a young Christian I decided it would probably be a good idea to get my sex life a bit more into God's order so I bought one or two Christian books on the subject Um, 
and which warned me of dire consequences of ever exposing my naked chest on the beach. Mm -hmm. Anybody? You've seen my chest? (laughs) The sight of the naked male chest was bound to incite terrible lust upon all these females. All three hairs that I had then, I've got five now. <laughs> I've been cultivating them carefully over the years. <laughs> you see? I, I seriously warned, warned that you get a skin cancer if you do that sort of thing. Serves you right. You see? Or other books that were handed to me by well-meaning people said, oh, yes. Well, sex is necessary in Christians. But whatever you do, don't enjoy it. If you enjoy it, you'll have to repent. Now, that is part of a long-term tradition in the church. There is no doubt that the church has made a right mess of the subject over the centuries. Not all the church, but a good chunk of the church. The church has taught wrongly and quite contrary to the word of God that sex is a bad thing. And that the more holy you are, the less sex you have. And so, if you want the classic picture of the holy person, your holy saint, they're always unmarried. And they're hermits, half-starved, living in some cave in the desert. That's the holy person. Now, where do we get that idea from? Certainly not from the Bible, because Jesus wasn't like that, and he was the holiest man that ever lived. You find Jesus down the pub, you find him um, enjoying his food. Uh, he, He was far from some ascetic person in the desert. But we, we have this idea, you see, that the holy man is the man that's denied himself everything. And uh, people have misunderstood the words of Jesus about if your hand offends, you cut it off, and they've chopped their hands off. In fact, some famous Christians in church history have chopped other bits of themselves off as well because they thought it was bad for them. And uh, have tried to get this idea that sex and religion don't go together. Now, though, I find many Christians still believe that. They don't try to believe it, they just find they do. And somehow feel there's a contradiction between the two. That is false. And in many ways, you see, I welcomed the rebellion that took place in the 1960s if it was a rebellion against that sort of traditional morality because that was never of God in the first place. And there's no doubt about it that many marriages were very dry, crusty affairs. And people did not love one another. I remember a neighbour that we had in our old house um, who said to my wife one day, well, we, we had our children, but then I soon put a stop to his nonsense after that. And that said it all. Uh, and if you looked at him, you could see that she'd put a stop to his nonsense soon after that, miserable old so-and-so. <laughs> Didn't have a hope, poor bloke. You see, it's often been like that. Now, we needed a rebellion against that sort of thing. But of course it was a wholesale thing that threw out everything good. What happened in the 1970s is that many of us that were around began to do a rethink. And we began to get hold of the word of God and say, hey, what does God have to say about sexual morality? Is it really true that this thing that seems so enjoyable to us is... is something that God doesn't really like and we ought not to like either is it true 
that if you're a Christian, you've got to become sexually repressed and rather straight-laced. It's a subject we don't talk about very much. Well, we did our rethink from the Word of God and we came up with some super discoveries. We discovered real freedom. We discovered that sex was a great gift. But contrary to the Daily Mirror cartoons, um, Adam and Eve didn't discover sex after they'd eaten the apple. You remember those sort of cartoons? It's always the same, aren't they? Um, there's a tree with a snake curled round it. And there's Adam and Eve with bushes growing at just the right height. <laughs> always got bushes just at the right height. <laughs> and there's always this apple. Uh, and somehow the message of these cartoons is that once you've eaten the apple, then you can really start enjoying life, you see. Sin leads to sex, leads to fun. We read the Bible and we found in Genesis that, well, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. Ah, so both sexes are all right, yeah. God made us sexual creatures. What does that mean? Oh, he's given us our sexual nature. So we therefore ought to receive ourselves as we are. And instead of having some kind of pubescent uh, embarrassment about our bodies, uh, we should accept our bodies as okay. Because God gave us bodies like that and said somehow by being a man or a woman, you reflect something of the image of God. Now, I think this is ever so important for us, you know. We've counselled no end of Christians who actually have difficulties with their own sexual identity and kind of wish they hadn't sprouted the bits they sprouted when they were teenagers and uh, um, don't really know how to handle their desires. Listen, it is not wrong to have sexual desires as a single person. That's not wrong. Those of you who are unmarried, it is perfectly all right to feel sexual desires. In fact, you might argue that there could be something wrong if you didn't feel anything. That's normal, because God made it that way. He gave us those desires. And instead of trying to fight them all the time, say, oh, this must be wrong, this must be bad, I said, no, it's part of the gifting of God to me that I have these feelings. In fact, it's part of me being made in the image of God. We read on in our Bible and we find that Adam and Eve uh, came, in, came into being um, and Adam looked at Eve and he said, wow, fantastic. Made up a poem to her. And she listened to the poem. She thought, I could fall for that guy. He says, no, I've got no competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it says, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, they'll become one flesh. Oh, and they were naked and they felt no shame. Yeah, fun in marriage. Now, they didn't have a, a father and mother to leave at that point, but the idea was there that they would become united in one flesh, they would be naked and with no shame, and there wasn't even a serpent on the horizon, and they hadn't even started on the apples. You see? So here was this happy couple, before they'd ever sinned, enjoying a wonderful sex life together for we don't know how many years. Great stuff. And we find throughout the Bible that the Bible isn't against us enjoying 
uh, our sexual natures and our sexual desires. What we do discover is that covenant is the key to paradise. I was reading Ezekiel 16 the other day and there's a lovely imagery there in what is a very sad chapter. The chapter is all about spiritual adultery. But God says, I saw you, Israel, as a child that was born and cast out on the hillside. And I looked after you and I watched you grow up and then one day you grew up to be a beautiful young woman ready for marriage. And God says, I entered into a covenant with you and I covered you with the corner of my garment and you became mine. The story goes on to say, but then you decided to go into adultery and became a prostitute. But the beautiful imagery tells us that God is a covenant God and that he believes that marriage is right. That making a covenant is the key to sexual fulfilment and that's the way he intended it. So Paul can write in Hebrews and say, let marriage be held in honour by all for God will judge the immoral and the adulterous. Let marriage be held in honour by all. Or another translation of that can be marriage is honourable for all. In other words, God has appointed marriage. It's not just some idea that we thought up. God invented the thing in the first place. And that doesn't matter what kind of church service you go through, whether you have a church service or not. The important thing is that there's a covenant. There is a commitment to faithfulness. Now this is of tremendous importance for all of us. People today talk about being sexually compatible and having fulfilled sex lives. You cannot take a physical act and isolate that from the way you feel about somebody and expect to get fulfilment. You cannot divorce what you do in half an hour from the way that you live for the rest of your life. And many people have discovered to their cost that there is no satisfaction in sex outside of covenant, outside of established relationship. And God said that all along. Covenant is very important. Uh, We'll come back to this again this afternoon when we try to answer the question, is there any future for marriage? But I just want to make the point that the will of God is quite clearly that there should be no sex outside of a marriage covenant. It's as simple as that. If you are single, then you're to remain celibate until the time that you get married. There's no place for trying to find out if we're sexually compatible. No place for sleeping around experimenting. God's will is perfectly clear that sexual intercourse and the arousal that precedes that belongs within a marriage covenant and not outside of it. That means many people who come into our churches today have to do some repenting because they've been promiscuous, they've slept around. Tragically, there are many folk in churches, in young people's fellowships, some the age of many of you who do not obey God in this and pay a high price for it let's just get it clear brothers and sisters and you have to establish in your own hearts if you haven't done so already that I will not have sex outside of marriage I will not disobey God on this God judges the immoral and the adulterous and we have to acknowledge that because we've discovered that God was right all along
back in the book of Proverbs there is a warning the warning is this that those who are sexually promiscuous reap disease there is a reference there that speaks about a man whose body is wasting away and he groans in his spirit and it's almost certainly a reference to syphilis in its advanced stages that says this is what happens to people who are sexually immoral AIDS is a predictable result of people's sin because God said so he says in Romans chapter 1 that the homosexuals receive in their bodies the due penalty for their error now whatever that means there is a warning there and I don't know about you I take the warnings of the Bible seriously if God sets this before me I want to warn it the book of Proverbs says that the adulterer is a fool and I've seen that again and again the man who commits adultery is a stupid man he pays a very high price He's a foolish man. I bumped into a guy who's just a little bit older than me. Uh, he used to be a member of our, our church. Um, not one that we married, but had been married before we arrived at Southleigh many years ago. And this man went into adultery. And I tell you, I saw that man a few years ago. I've never seen a more haggard-looking wreck in my life. He looks absolutely burnt out with life. And I, I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, hey, not bad. <laughs> well, you might think otherwise, but I, <laughs> I thought not bad. I thought, yeah, I, I am glad that I have not put myself through that folly and the high price that that man has paid for his sin. It's terrible. God was right all along. You know, it is true today that... I said to my own children, I said, at the moment, and if you continue in this path, you are guaranteed 100% never to get AIDS. Nor will you get syphilis, gonorrhea, trichomonasis, uh, crab lice, herpes. You'll be very unlikely, daughters, to get cervical cancer provided you remain virgins to your married you preferably marry virgins and you remain faithful throughout your lives that's the will of God isn't it? that's what the Bible says guaranteed free from disease well that's a blessing guaranteed that you will not go through the heartaches if you remain faithful guaranteed that your children will grow up with real security you know, in my former church, I've only just moved to Hailsham about four months ago. In my former church, in 17 years of marrying people within the church, we didn't have one divorce. We didn't have one broken home. We got many folk came to us with broken homes. Many divorced people came to us. But of those we married who were committed believers, we never saw one go astray. Now that in a society where adultery and divorce were very commonplace, I say that's a, a tremendous testimony, don't you? To what God can do. It's terrific. Now that was because people said, we will obey the will of God. That's tremendous. God was right. He has said the way to do it. More than that, we find many Christians who 
who have some hang-ups about their sex lives in marriage. But we've also counselled many, many through to a place of great joy and fulfilment. And far from sex within marriage becoming some dull, passionless affair, it's the very opposite. It's a tremendously fulfilling thing. It's when two people become one in such a way that they express more perfectly than in any other way on earth the love of Christ for his church. Now that's pretty good. And the love of Christ for his church is a very passionate affair. And we've seen that the book of um, Song of Solomon can have fulfilment today, not only as an image of that love of Christ for his church, but as a very real, down-to-earth expression of love for a, 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 a husband and wife for each other. God was right all along. And I just want to testify to that. Having lived through the 60s and 70s and having been pretty beaten up in my non-Christian past by all the mess and the philosophies that are going around, I just want to testify that God's way works. And the more I accord with God's will, and the more you do, the happier we are, the more blessed and fulfilled we are, and the more God is glorified in our lives. And what God is doing today is, I believe, raising up a group of people who are going to show the way back for this world. It does not matter where you've come from. God can deal with your past. It matters where we're going. That's what God is after. You may have had a terrible mess in your past. You may say, well, to be honest, I bought all these philosophies in their time. I can see now that I behaved the way I did because of these things. Certainly that is true of my friends. But uh, I now want to get my life in line with the will of God I believe that's going to be fulfilling what the Lord will do is begin to raise up an answer to the problem of AIDS in our society but not just the problem of AIDS but to the real issue of promiscuity that underlies it and it will not be a return to some repressive morality it will be an advance into the will of God it will be a step into the true liberty that belongs to God's children. Now, we have to communicate that by our example. If you're an unmarried person, then have a testimony that it is great to be unmarried, that it's gloriously fulfilling to serve the Lord with all your heart and to take all those sexual energies and focus them into serving God, that it's, a, it's an honourable thing to be a virgin that to renounce a sinful past is great and to wait for God's choice is terrific let them know that if you're married or soon contemplating marriage then have a vision that your marriage is going to testify to society not of some dull thing that you're trapped into but to a gloriously liberating thing and I believe that the church today can show our terribly confused and hurt society the way back. We've never had a greater opportunity than we've got at this moment. And you, brothers and sisters, younger than me, most of you, have come into the kingdom at such a time as this to reach your generation at the place where they really hurt. Now, I said C.T. Studd wanted a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I don't think I'm being overdramatic when I say that for many people in our society, they are within a yard of hell as far as their sex lives are concerned. And there's never a more personal issue for us to address. Amen? Mm. We'll have a few questions.
It's a very complex issue. Some folk would like me to say it's a very simple issue. If I give you the simple answer, the simple answer is that you should only see anyone naked in marriage, and then it should be totally without shame. It, incidentally, the positive of that, I don't believe there should be shame of our bodies within marriage, and yet you find some Christians, there is a very real shame. And that's not the will of God. So there's a need there for some uh, getting over something that was put there falsely by the world, not by God. So within marriage, there certainly should be a total freedom. The issue of nudity is, I think, a complex one because it's this issue that we in the church live in Babylon. We live in a secular society and we cannot put our heads in the sand on the beach, especially Brighton because it comes up covered in tar and goodness knows what else. Anyway, it's too pebbly. Uh, We have to live with this society and know how we're going to handle it. Now, it doesn't matter whether it's, in principle, whether it's somebody topless or topless and bottomless or a Victorian ankle show. The effect can be the same because it is to do with the attitude of heart. And uh, the psalmist said, I've made a covenant with, that, that I will not look with lust upon a maiden. And that's the issue for us, that we are not to look with lust upon one another. Um, and you have to make a covenant with your eyes about that so that you... You see, we cannot avoid living in this world. It happens to be a world that seems to like taking its clothes quite a lot and uh, encouraging us to look with lust in many cases. Now, I think we have to make a decision. I will not look with lust. And it, I certainly say through my own experiences with, with all men here that uh, it's not a lot to do with the quantity of clothes. It's to do with an attitude of heart in the end. So, we have to cope with that. Um, It's not an easy one. It it raises the whole question, particularly with regard to fashion. It's very difficult to legislate how long a skirt should be or how low a dress should be. We we get into enormous problems if we start doing that. Um, And it's one of the things that's led the church to appear to be very legalistic. At the same time, We do have clear instructions in Scripture about how we are to express ourselves to the world, what we communicate. And uh, we have to say, what is coming out of me in the way I dress? I mean, what's coming out of me in the way I dress is these are the first things I could find this morning when I (laughs) got up. (laughs) But that's true nearly every day, and I'm not the most... fashion conscious person in the world Um, that's what I say about myself you see we all say something about how we dress or don't dress and we have to think about that as Christians yes that's right and the issue on all these things where you can't find simple laws you know thou shalt have a skirt of so many inches long um, what you do, you turn to the last chapters of Romans where Paul is dealing with the law of love on doubtful things and the issue about conduct he's taking meat offered to idols uh, there but the, the principle is the same will it cause my brother to stumble and that's the real test Will my behaviour, be it in the way I dress or how I act, will it cause my brother to stumble? If it will, then it's wrong. And if we'll follow up with another one, that if we're not careful, we endanger ourselves 
by a tight-fitting dress or a pair of heels too high, or um, you therefore lose some of your expression of your personality if you're not careful, because uh, everything can be interpreted in a very different way by the male species. Mm. Yeah, we, we we are, you know, clothes keep us warm. Some of us have an approach to clothes that that's all we really want is cover our modesty and keep ourselves warm. Don't worry too much. But actually, for many people, clothes say a lot more. And uh, you just make sure that we are saying what we really want to say to people in the way that we dress. Now, the lustful person is going to lust whatever you wear, but that's not the issue. We have responsibilities. It was certainly an abomination to be a transvestite in ancient Israel. And in the New Testament, although they all wore sort of robes and togas, things, they knew the difference between a male garment and a female garment. And that's an important one in these, age, these days of unisex and all that. Yeah. There are more important issues. Uh, it's the fault of Christians again and again to go for the pimples instead of the disease that causes the pimples. And you've got to get underneath and go for the disease. Otherwise, we just... People... You see, the, the problem... We've we, we said this before. The problem is we see things that the world can't see. We see the invisible world. And it's no use going to them and saying, look... Uh, you've got to stop doing this because there's this invisible principle. They say, what invisible principle? <laughs> you see. So until we can first of all get underneath with them to, to get to the real issues, we'll never get it right. Once you've done that, the world, the world isn't entirely stupid, you know? The Bible says the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. They, they are quite good at getting things right once they know it's right. Doors on ferries will get shut now. <laughs> Yeah, because they they found out the hard way that there was an issue underneath it. Now, if somebody had said um, a year ago, or however long ago, we need to go back now. Right, these ferries are sailing with doors open. These promiscuous ferries. Uh, we campaign for all ferry doors to be closed from now on. Folk would have laughed. Nobody laughs now. Do you see? Does it take a tragedy to do that? For a sinful world, if it will not listen to God's word, it takes a tragedy. The tragedy today is called AIDS. Simple as that. That's the very disaster in the sexual realm that at last is beginning to shake people up to say, hey, perhaps we ought to close the ferry doors. And that's the message, you see. And that's the way we have to come at it sometimes. Okay? So, another question. Uh, the problem with doing that is that people misunderstand the judgment of God. And uh, I believe the only effective way we can talk about AIDS is to talk about what we're doing to care for AIDS victims. And that's what some of us are working on at the moment. Um, we should be hosting conferences here on that subject. When we are talking about how we care... You see, they don't read our books. They're not interested in our 
theologies of AIDS. When, when we are caring, we then earn the right to say, hey, listen, that we found some common factors in all these AIDS victims, and it all points back to a root disease in our society, of which they are only the unfortunate victims. But in one sense, we're all victims of this disease. And then we can talk, you see. So that's how I believe we approach it that way. Yeah, yeah. But you see, I, I think we, you do get opportunity to talk about the judgment of God. And uh, I feel that although we begin with our care, we must go on to talk about the judgment. Because what is going to stop people from being saved? Oh, I said the judgment springs out of the love of God. It does. It's a mercy. When, when God says, stop, you're going to die. That's a mercy of God. If our society goes on in its promiscuity, it will destroy itself morally and will collapse utterly into anarchy. Now, that's not good for anybody. So God says, stop. But he also, always brings judgment with this thing, a heartache that you find in the book of Ezekiel. It says, why will you die, O house of Israel? I don't want you to die. So repent. That's the message. So repent. Now, I believe if we don't talk about the judgment of God, folk will not understand the significance of this disease. They will not repent, and we will not be saved. So we need to talk about the judgment of God, but we've got to earn the right to do that by showing that we clearly love people, and that God in the midst of awful judgment remembers mercy and expresses that mercy especially through his people hmm? yeah. you said quite a bit about living fulfilled lives as single people hmm. do you care to expand a bit? I think I'll expand on that later on this afternoon okay? but if, if you don't think I have ask that again but I think it should come up in this afternoon session Is there, I've got something to say on that yeah isn't true that's only true in the western world that is not true in the two thirds world right across Africa you have an epidemic of AIDS that is largely heterosexual and it began almost certainly in Africa in the heterosexual community um, nobody knows the full origin of this disease um, it is possible that somebody disobeyed again God's law and had a sexual relationship with a monkey and brought something into the human race. That is a possibility. Nobody's got evidence for that, but it's known that there are HIV-type viruses very closely allied in the monkey. They found it in a certain species of monkey. Now, that's possible. That introduces it to the human race, but it's the disease of the promiscuous in Africa, uh, not of the homosexuals. And in fact, in many parts of Africa, homosexuality is frowned upon. It, it is a very unacceptable thing to many African tribes. Somebody once gave me another analysis that it might be that in the research labs where they are concocting 
That's another possibility. That there are occasional escapes of something which they can't control. Mm. That's another possibility. Again, there's no evidence for it. Um, because nobody actually knows. We think, they think they've traced back how it reached the States, um, as near as, through somebody. But that doesn't help a lot, obviously. But it, it's, the majority of people that have AIDS across the world are heterosexuals. It's our homosexual population because of their particular practices and the vulnerability to blood, to blood transmission. Um, it's uh, fair to say that thus far most of the people who have died have been homosexuals, but in the States today there's an unknown number of heterosexual people who now have HIV-positive uh, responses and that is going to lead to large numbers of heterosexual people dying. It's only a matter of time now, unfortunately. That would also be true over here. But clearly folk are getting away with it at the present. But, I, I mean, to come back to your point, AIDS is only the next in a long line of warnings, of disease warnings that God gave us. We found with venereal disease that we could treat those but then they began to modify and there are some untreatable strains of gonorrhea. We keep trying to keep up with that. We then get herpes, which uh, um, never quite goes away. It's one of these diseases, once you've got it, you've got it and it can reoccur at various times. Um, genital warts. Now, the combination of that, again, they can be treated, but the combination of those things... Um, um, in a promiscuous lifestyle um, is a, a major contributory factor to cervical cancer. It's not the only one, lest anybody here should ever know someone that's lived a very chaste life and has got cervical cancer, but it's a major, a major cause. So we're trying to keep up with it. We're screening this, and we're all the time not dealing with the real issue. We're ignoring the judgment, the warnings that God sets, and we find a way round it, and we keep advancing our medical science to find a way round it, and find a way round it. Leaves us Christians in a place that we say, yeah, we do want a cure for AIDS, but we're not sure if we want it, if people aren't going to take the real lesson from it. And this is our tension. Um, out of compassion, we want a cure, um, but we do want the world to learn the lesson. And it's one of many warnings that God has set before us. You look at the statistics for abortion, for child abuse, for the breakdown of marriage, for broken homes, kids in care, and all of these are warnings from God that we keep ignoring. John, how do you, how do you feel about uh, publicising the, uh, the conferences of, of, say, AIDS or certain conferences that we have to, to, the, to local media? Or, uh, sort of, oh, I think it's no. It's always right for for us as Christians to do things privately first to get our act together. <laughs> but certainly, our goal uh, is once we've got our act together reasonably well that we go public and we start mounting conferences for non-Christians and we advertise through the media. But uh, I, you know, I'm a believer in guerrilla warfare. <laughs> uh, if you go public too quickly then you're just not prepared and, and you fall flat on your face
Yeah. I think I begin fundamentally by saying we live in a, 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 an immoral society. There's, a, there's no such thing as innocent. Uh, we're going to start there. Um, it's it's not logically possible to argue that uh, that only men are guilty in this disease. It's just not true. Um, I remember reading recently the police trying to track down a porno star. If that's the right word, star, you know, someone, who, a woman. They've been going right across Europe, infecting dozens of men. You see, because she's got she's HIV positive. Um, women can carry the disease as much as men. They can communicate the disease as much as men, in fact. And uh, um, that it strikes children is horrific. Uh, the kids did not deserve that. But then the Bible, being not a sentimental book, tells us that when we sin enough as human beings, then the innocent do get hurt. And, and, and children get taken in if a judgment of war comes on a nation then innocent children get killed simple as that horrible but true the answer is when you repent you will preserve the innocent children as well and that's the, the horrible thing there's no such thing as free sex free sex costs and sometimes it will cost the lives of ch our children and I, we, we've got to make that message with all seriousness I think and say um, that what you're doing really is trying to judge one group of people above the others and you're being self-righteous about it you have no right to do that you don't even have facts on your side yeah, I'm sure look compassion does not check out somebody's creed or conduct first um, you're going to show love to somebody just show love to them because they need your love and uh, anyone that's going to ask judgmental questions before they'll treat somebody isn't, isn't acting as Christian certainly and our view is that if somebody's caught AIDS because of their promiscuous homosexual behaviour much as we disagree with homosexuality we will show as much compassion to them as we would to an innocent child because our calling is just to show love without discrimination that's what this world needs at the moment. Mm. I suspect we ought to stop there and have something to eat. Uh, uh, hear the rumblings in the tummies. This is Paul, by the way, who's...